Welcome, and welcome to those that are watching remotely. Uh, today we are visiting us from the Whitehead Institute in Boston, Dr. Durakar Palagarman. Uh, Durakar received his master's and PhD from the University of Queensland in Australia, where he focused on the role of CMIB in glucamine transformation. And then he moved to Boston to join the lab of Bob Weinberg at the Whitehead Institute for his postdoc work, uh, where he switched to working on solid tumors, uh, in particular breast cancer. And his work since, and moving forward, is focusing on differentiation therapies, so working on epithelial transition and reversing that and preventing that. Uh, Dorkar has been the recipient of several awards, both during, our, during his postdoc and moving forward, including a C.J. Martin Biomedical Fellowship in, um, from the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, a Cleveland Cancer Stem Cell Young Investigator Award, and more recently uh, supported by K99R00 from NIH, focusing on differentiation therapy. Uh, Dr. Prado-Bierman does not have any financial interest to disclose that are relevant, um, any conflicts of financial conflicts of interest. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments for a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Doctor, thank you. Uh, can everyone hear me at the back? Okay. All right, I'd like to start by thanking uh, Todd and everyone else who invited me to come here. It's, uh, it's been really great talking to people. And uh, I'm going to present some of the work that I've been working on for the past uh, few years. I, again, I have this slide, I don't have any financial interests. So I'd like to start um, by putting up a quote by Dr. William Wadlam, who was a clinician scientist at Columbia in New York. And this is what he said almost a, a century ago. The problem of cancer treatment is almost as hard as finding some agent that will dissolve away the left ear and leave the right ear unharmed. So slight is the difference between the cancer cell and its normal ancestor. And what he said almost a century ago remain, remains true till today in some ways because a large part of cancer research is still focused on trying to understand differences between tumor cells um, and normal cells and the pathways that make them aberrant. In fact, uh, I'll point out one example here is the Cancer Genome Atlas that was initiated almost a, a decade ago now with the cost upwards of $350 million with the sole aim of characterizing, identifying and characterizing genetic differences between uh, tumors and normals in about 12 different tumor types. And even though we've made a lot of progress in, in cancer research, I think the one thing that has really hit us hard is the complexity of tumors. Uh, and by complexity, I'm referring to heterogeneity, uh, both intratumoral and intertumoral heterogeneity, uh, the role of uh, the stroma, different kinds of stroma cells that are home to the tumor, and their impact on, on, on uh, prognosis and outcomes. And uh, so for my talk, I'll focus on one aspect of this uh, complexity, which is um, intratumoral heterogeneity. And what I have here is a section of an invasive ductal carcinoma of the breast, which has been stained with uh, pancytoclaritin red. Uh, it's an intermediate filament protein that's expressed in epithelial cells. Vimentin, um, which is also an intermediate filament protein expressed in mesenchymal cells, and smooth muscle lactin that labels the stroma that you can see here. And what you'll appreciate just by looking at this is the uh, heterogeneity that exists. There's cells expressing different levels of just these two markers. 
In fact, you find cells that stain solely for cytokeratin, indicating that they have epithelial traits, that they're epithelial in nature. You also have cells that stain only for, for vimentin, indicating that they've probably moved to a more mesenchymal um, state. But what you also have are cells that co-express both um, vimentin and pancytokeratin, uh, indicating that they probably share epithelial and mesenchymal traits. And I think we've all come to appreciate that uh, there are different mechanisms through which this heterogeneity arises within tumors. There are genetic differences that lead to the clonal evolution of, of different subpopulations within the tumor. But there are also non-genetic uh, modes of evolution of such heterogeneity. Um, uh, possibly epigenetic and through other mechanisms. And this has uh, led us to understand that there are subpopulations within tumors that uh, are different uh, in steady state, but also in response to, to therapy. And um, so this is almost now 14 years ago when Michael Clark's lab, then at Michigan, um, isolated the first instance of uh, cancer stem cells in, in breast tumors, in solid tumors, in fact. And so what Mohamed al-Hajj and his lab did at that time was to try and separate out cells of, a, of, a, of primary breast cancer using these two markers, CD44 and CD24. Now, both of these are cell addition molecules. CD44 is a glycoprotein. And what he found was only when he isolated this CD44 high, CD24 low population and transplanted them subsequently into, uh, uh, into not-skid hosts, only with this population would he be able to get uh, a fully blown tumor, whereas the other populations were not capable of generating uh, a tumor when transplanted. And so there's something about this population that enables them to be able to see tumors upon transplantation. And since this study, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of papers that have come out trying to understand what these subpopulations within tumors are. And uh, just to summarize those observations, I think what we think now is that there are minor subpopulations within tumors that have these stem-like properties. These typically tend to be more resistant to cytotoxic therapy, such that when you now treat them with, with any form of chemotherapy, you find that the bulk of the tumor gets um, eliminated, leaving behind these survivors which then give rise to a relapse, in many cases a more aggressive relapsed tumor, which is more uh, resistant to therapy. There are also subpopulations of these cells which have more mesenchymal traits that are able to initiate the invasion metastasis cascade and lead to the seeding of uh, distant metastasis. And so while we've, we've, uh, trying, we've tried to understand some of the signaling pathways that are operative in these cells, what still remains a mystery is how these cells actually arise. Are these cells already present within tumors? Do they arise de novo following some form of therapy? Are they stress-induced? Um, and uh, by and large, we've been un unsuccessful in understanding how these cells arise. What we do know is that the epithelial to mesenchymal transition is one program which, is, which um, enables the, these cells to emerge. When cells undergo an epithelial to mesenchymal transition, we find that the cells that arise are more um, zenkel, they're more resistant to therapy and have some of these stem-like properties. So what is, what is the EMT? The EMT is a, is a cell biological program that enables epithelial cells to lose some of their uh, epithelial traits, such as cell-cell uh, junctions in the form of adherence or tight junctions, uh, apical basal cell polarity, and binding to a basement membrane. And they lose some of these properties and at the same time gain properties uh, such as the ability to invade and migrate, some of those properties that are only known um, to be present within fibroblasts. 
And by acquiring these properties, these cells are able to initiate the uh, invasion metastasis cascade, invade through the local environment, uh, intravasate into the circulation, and ultimately seed uh, distal metastasis. So a few years ago, there was work done by uh, Sindhu and Mani, who showed that when primary memory epithelial cells undergoing EMT, either through the ectopic expression of snail or twist, which are EMT using transcription factors, or by treatment with TGF-beta, he was able to see that these cells, which were primarily CD44 medium or low here, uh, and express CD24, they now gain the CD44 high state, which if you remember that Al-Hajj uh, uh, plot is reminiscent of a cancer stem cell phenotype. What he also found was that these cells that are 44 high are actually much better at forming um, mammospheres. Now the mammosphere assay is, is a surrogate assay for self-renewal. Uh, but most importantly, you find that these cells that have undergone an ENT are now much better at initiating tumors when transplanted into mice at lower numbers. So here, even a 1,000 cells that have undergone an EMT are able to initiate a tumor, whereas in the absence of that, you need at least 100,000 cells. So There's almost a hundredfold difference in the tumor-initiating uh, potential. What we've also known from um, a lot of work is that cells that are uh, more mesenchymal, that are CD44 high, are actually more resistant to therapy. So this is uh, work that was done uh, in Jenny Chang's lab in Houston. And what she found was uh, following neoadjuvant therapy, you find the proportion of cells within the tumor, um, that there's an increased proportion of CD44 high cells, indicating that these cells are probably surviving, at least a portion of these cells are surviving therapy, and perhaps ultimately giving rise to um, a relapsed tumor. And so there have been attempts to model this sort of chemoresistance or chemosensitivity in vitro. Um, and what we know is that cells that have undergone an EMT are inherently more uh, resistant to tumors. As you can see here, the red line represents a mesenchymal cell line, uh, which is at least one lot for more uh, resistant to either doxorubicin or paclitaxel, which are commonly used uh, for breast cancer in the clinic. And so... What we've come to appreciate in, in the field now is the two main challenges that we face is, first of all, confronting this resistance to therapy, which seems to be quite prevalent. And in some cases, we know that this resistance arises from the presence of these mesenchymal or more stem-like cells. The other thing is a large portion of uh, cancer-related deaths occur from metastasis. And so if we're able to alter that mesenchymal state that the cancer cells are, and then perhaps we can uh, make some headway into trying to inhibit that or try at least slow the process of metastasis down. And so the study of these subpopulations within tumors has almost become the holy grail of cancer research, where if you have therapy that's directly targeted against these specific subpopulations uh, before administration of cytotoxic therapy, then the idea would be that you would get rid of the ability to relapse, and so you'd achieve remission. And also by eliminating some of these cells, you'd be able to uh, halt or slow down the process of metastasis. And so when um, I started uh, in Bob's lab, I really wanted to address uh, the question of what these cells actually were. Um, in terms of therapy, there have been attempts at designing specific therapies targeted against these cancer stem cell populations. Uh, but by and large, we haven't seen a lot of clinical benefit from this. And I think the main reason for that is because this population represents something that is not consistent across all tumor types. This is a, a moving target. So it's hard to design something that's going to be applicable to every tumor type. 
And so what our events are about doing was to try and see if we can use the reverse of the EMT transition to make cells more epithelial, to induce an example of epithelial transition, and see if that would sensitize cells to therapy or make them less able to metastasize. And so the key questions that I wanted to address were, is the EMT program even reversible uh, experimentally or um, pharmacologically? How could such a transition be induced? And would actually using such a reversion uh, sensitize cells to therapy or would it make these cells uh, less tumorigenic or less metastatic? And if we were to do that, what were the mechanisms by which this would happen? And so I'll just start with the, the, the first part of this. To ask these questions, I used um, a cell line that is derived from uh, reduction mammoplasty, primary human breast cancer, uh, primary human mammary epithelial cells. These have been uh, immortalized using HTERT, which is the catalytic subunit of telomerase, to immortalize them. And they also have the SP40 early region, which serves to repress P53 and uh, PRB pathways. And so what you have is now this line that uh, resembles an epithelial cobblestone-like island morphology. And when you then stain these, you find that they express high levels of epithelial markers, like echidarin, specifically at the cell junctions that you can see in the adherence junctions. And they don't really express very high levels of xanthal markers, like dimentin. And when you run them uh, on the flow, you find that they have the C44 low, 24 positive uh, cell surface phenotype, which is, again, reminiscent of a population that is not stem-like. Um, what we did then in the lab is to isolate. You find that there's a small subpopulation within this line of mesenchymal cells that are 44 high. When you isolate those populations and propagate them, you find that they generate a stable mesenchymal line that we refer to as NAMIC for naturally rising mesenchymal cells. And these cells don't form uh, those junctions that you see. They don't form those uh, islands. Uh, and some of them are actually quite uh, spindle-shaped, as you'll be able to see from the picture. And they, they lose uh, expression of all these epithelial markers, like EKDRN or P63 or PKDRN. And they switch to now expressing these example markers like thymentin or uh, fibronectin, amongst others. And when you now look at them by flow, these have now assumed most of these cells now have a CD44 high, CD24 low profile, with very few cells actually expressing CD24. And so to my mind, this was um, an ideal system to look for agents that could induce a reversion of this cell type to this uh, the more epithelial uh, cell type. And before I move on, I'd just like to say that when you now transplant these cells into um, the fat pods of not skid mice, you find that the more epithelial cells, as shown before, are actually much less tumorigenic. So you need at least half a million cells to be able to initiate a tumor, whereas in the case of the mesenchymal cells, um, less than 10,000 cells will do it. And so I wanted to look at uh, if I could use certain agents to be able to revert these mesenchymal cells to a more epithelial state. So I started off uh, looking at the literature. There's a, a fair bit known about EMT pathways that are important in the EMT. Um, including TGF beta, wind signaling, and others. So I first started by using inhibitors of some of these pathways to see if I could change the residence in a mesenchymal state um, using some of these agents that I have pointed out here. And by and large, this was an unsuccessful uh, exercise because either the cells didn't really transition or we found very transient changes which then went back to being mesenchymal. And so I scratched this part, and I started off by doing an unbiased screen to see if we can find uh, small molecule agents that are able to induce this transition. And to do this, um, I used a reporter 
which contains part of the EKDM promoter. And as I mentioned before, EKDM is a keystone epithelial marker that's expressed in the adherence junctions. So we found part of this promoter in front of the Luciferase, and we expressed this reporter in the mesenchymal mnemonic uh, cells, which typically don't express EKDM, and screened this against a small molecule compound library looking for luminescence as a readout to identify agents that could induce transcription of EKDM. And uh, surprising to us, one of the top agents that could do this was this compound called Foscolin, at which at that time I had no idea what Foscolin was. Um, what we also saw was this other agent called cholerotoxin was also, although um, more modestly, able to activate this reporter. Now, both of these compounds, cholerotoxin and phosphorin, work through slightly different ways, but ultimately achieve the same um, outcome, which is increasing the levels of this intracellular second messenger called cyclic AMP. Phosphorin does it by directly activating adenylate cyclase, whereas cholerotoxin activates the GS alpha uh, protein by uh, poly ADP, by ADP ribosylating it, which then induces uh, the activation of adenylate cyclase. So I then wanted to look at what these, either of these compounds would do when I treated my mesenchymal cells with them. Um, in the interest of time, I'll only present data that we did with cholerotoxin, even though the results of phosphorin are quite similar. What we find is when I treat these cells with uh, cholerotoxin over a period of 10 to 12 days, you find that these cells now start assuming a more epithelial-like morphology. You start finding them clustering together again, forming these islands. <coughs> Importantly, now they start expressing these epithelial markers like EKDN, and you start seeing the formation of these adherence junctions again. They also form tight junctions. And you find that a significant portion of the cells have now jumped back from that CD44 high state to expressing more CD24 now. And uh, we did a series of assays to determine the epithelial versus mesenchymal properties, and we find that um, the cells following the transition have now lost the ability to form mammospheres, which, as I mentioned previously, is a surrogate for self renewal. But they also lost their ability to invade and, uh, <coughs> and migrate, which are all characteristic of uh, mesenchymal cells. I then wanted to look at their, uh, um, their expression profile to see if their um, transcriptome was essentially changed. And what we find is the cells that were originally mesenchymal, the dynamic 8 cells, when they started out with, following this treatment with color toxin, now shift to this more epithelial state, as you can see here, that very closely overlaps with the parental HMLE cells, which are epithelial. So, is the EMT reversible? Yes, it is reversible. Um, and treatment with either of these compounds is able to induce this change. But does treatment with these compounds actually lead to any uh, outcome that is actually important for tumor genesis? And so what we find is when we now carry out limiting dilution analysis with the cells that have been reverted using chlorotoxin, we find that when they were originally mesenchymal, you could get a tumor with 10 or 20,000 cells. Whereas now following this transition, they've lost their ability to see tumors at lower numbers. So you, need, you almost need at least a million cells to be able to initiate a tumor. So they've lost that ability to form tumors when transplanted into a host. What we also find is those mesenchymal cells, when you implant them into the fat pad of, of these not skid mice, they actually form uh, micrometastasis in the lung. So they're somehow able to execute part of that invasion metastasis cascade and seed uh, micrometastases. Those never really outgrow to form fully blown metastasis, possibly because the environment uh, in the lung is quite different and they don't have the right factors to do so. 
but they're at least able to go through that cascade. And we find is that following that transition now, these cells have lost their ability to, to leave the primary tumor or to initiate these uh, micrometastases. What we also looked at was the susceptibility to chemotherapeutic drugs and a range of different inhibitors. What we find is initially now following the transition, these cells have now um, become more sensitive to treatment with either doxorubicin or paclitaxel. We typically see anywhere between five to ten or over tenfold differences in the sensitivity uh, following this transition. And this is to doxorubicin and paclitaxel. We also see that they become far more sensitive now to another chemotherapeutic agent, methotrexate. And a series of other agents. Now, I've only pointed out one example from each of these three families, but there's actually multiple inhibitors of all these families that they become more uh, sensitive to following this reversion, um, including EGFR-MAP kinase inhibitors. So in using this transition, not only makes them less tumorigenic or less able to metastasize, but it also sensitizes them to, to therapy, not only with chemotherapy, but a range of different inhibitors. And so at this point, I was very interested in trying to understand what's actually happening. I didn't really know a lot about the cyclic AMP uh, pathway, so I wanted to explore uh, downstream what's actually going on when I treat these cells with cholerotoxin. So as I mentioned before, either of these compounds leads to increases in um, the levels of cyclic AMP within those cells. Now, cyclic AMP has two major substrates in the cell. One of them is this protein kinase called PKA, um, and the other one are these group of uh, proteins called EPACs, or exchange proteins activated by cyclic AMP. And so I wanted to look at, first of all, am I even seeing an increase in CAMP in the cells when I treat them with these agents? And secondly, which one of these two pathways is actually important for the transition that I observe? So using um, the, we got help from the metabolomic score at the right to look at levels of CAMP um, by mass spec. And we find that following treatment with first cholerotoxin, you have increases in CAMP. This is not surprising. This has been known for 30 or 40 years now. And using um, an adenylate cyclase inhibitor can inhibit that increase in CAMP. <coughs> Now, to look at which arm of this pathway is actually important for the transition, I use two specific analogs. This 8-CPT analog is preferentially known to activate APAC signaling, and 8-bromo-CMP is preferentially known to activate PKA. And I find that only when I treat these cells with 8-bromo-CMP, which specifically activates PKA, you actually see that reversion to a more um, epithelial state, whereas with 8-CPT, I don't really see um, that reversion. And so this gave me some confidence that it was probably PKA that was an important downstream um, substrate of cyclic AMP here. Now, when you look at PKA, it's a very interesting protein. It um, exists as a hollow enzyme in the absence of cyclic AMP with two regulatory subunits and two catalytic subunits, uh, which is smaller. When CAMP binds, it binds to the regulatory subunits of PKA, and it um, induces the conformational change in the regulatory subunits, which now allows the catalytic subunits to be liberated and move to different subcellular locations and phosphorylate different substrates. Um, so I was very keen to look at the catalytic subunit and see what it's actually doing. And we know that there's three flavors of the catalytic subunit, alpha, beta, and gamma. And um, just by gene expression, we know that the gamma subunit is not expressed in these cells. It's only expressed in very specialized subtypes. So I looked at um, alpha and beta, and I started off by doing just a loss of function study, just knocking it down, see what it will do. And what I find is, again, dynamic cells, as I showed before, are mesenchymal. They have these C44 high-ish kind of um, expression profile. They express high levels of um, 
which is what I think uh, you mentioned here in green. And following a treatment with chorotoxin, you find that they all transition back to this epithelial state, and most of the cells are now C44 low. Uh, this is using a control happen. If you knock down either alpha or beta catalytic subunit, you find that you, you don't get the transition anymore. So most of the cells still remain C44 high. Somehow, both alpha and beta are actually important for this transition. And I'm still trying to figure out why that is. Why is it that one cannot substitute for the other? Um, I also wanted to um, overexpress the uh, catalytic subunit and see what it will do. Um, but when you overexpress the catalytic subunit with PKA, I, I don't see any effects. And I think the reason for that is that the PKA system is actually very good at buffering itself. And so when you have high levels of the catalytic subunit, you see a concomitant increase in the levels of the regulatory subunit to, to balance that system. And so what I had to do was make mutants of the catalytic subunit that are unable to bind to the regulatory subunit. And when you now topically express these mutants in the mesenchymal cells, you find that those cells are now able to move to a more epithelial state. So in the sense that active PKA is actually sufficient to be able to push these cells to a more um, epithelial state. And I want to look at what would having active PKA within a tumor um, actually do. And so I'll just uh, describe one quick experiment before I move on. But what I did here was um, have these numbing eight cells, the mesenchymal cells, that contained the conceivably active form of PKA, the catalytic mutant subunit, in a doxycycline-inducible vector. And I transplanted these uh, cells into the fat pads of not kid mice, allowed these tumors to grow out for six weeks, and then split the mice into two groups, where I gave one group doxycycline to activate PKA, and the other group did not get any. And following this, I would uh, measure tumor size, harvest the tumors, and then look at them by flow cytometry. But what I also wanted to do was do secondary transplantation. Now, if I transplant those cells within tumors, would they still retain the tumor-initiating tumor properties? What I noticed first was that the histology of these tumors is actually quite different. When you don't have PKA, you find these very mesenchymal poorly differentiated tumors that are almost sarcomatoid. That's very characteristic of these lines. When you now have PKA being expressed for about two weeks, you find that there's quite a stark shift in the uh, histology. You start seeing something that more resembles carcinomas now with more round epithelial cells. Importantly, when you now transform these into secondary hosts, you find that the the cells that have not seen any PKA still retain the ability to initiate tumors when you transplant them into secondary hosts. But those that have now seen PKA expression for two weeks now have lost that ability to initiate tumors. There's almost, I think, about a 20-fold difference here. So activation of PKA on its own within tumors is actually sufficient to induce this form of differentiation uh, uh, to make them um, less tumorigenic. And if you actually look at the mice uh, at their lungs, you find that there's obviously much fewer metastasis um, following this uh, differentiation. And so at this point, I'd just like to quickly summarize this point. We know that elevation of CAMP and activation of PKA leads to the uh, MET. And we know that PKA is both necessary and sufficient for, the, for this transition. And that activation of PK within tumors is actually uh, leads to the ablation of the tumor initiating properties. And so at this point, I had a few questions. Um, the first one being, OK, we've done all these experiments. Does it actually matter? How relevant is this clinically? Uh, secondly, is activation of PK a widely applicable method of using this transition? Would it work in any cell type? And the third one is, what are the downstream mechanisms through which PK works to induce this transition? So the first part, again, this has not really been done with uh, the help of clinicians. This is just looking at publicly available data sets. 
And what we find is that if you just look at gene expression data that's publicly available, specifically at basal like breast cancers, you find that high expression of the catalytic subunit alpha actually confers uh, better prognosis um, in, in these uh, basal like breast cancers specifically. Now, I've spoken about the catalytic subunits, but I'll quickly shift focus to the regulatory subunits. Uh, there are four different uh, regulatory subunits, as I've mentioned here. And the main role of these subunits is to sequester the catalytic subunit to keep them inactive. And so when you um, have mutations or if you uh, abrogate that uh, function, you find that there's more free catalytic subunit, which presumably in this case uh, works to prevent a mesenchymal transition, which makes cells more aggressive. So what we find is that there are, this is from CBIO portal, so there are recurrent amplifications in the regulatory subunit of PKA in, in several different human cancers. And I've pointed here specifically to two breast cancer studies. One of them is the metabolic study and the other one is TCGA, where you find there are recurrent amplifications in, in, in the regulatory subunit locus. And this is true of not only R1A, but multiple other subunits as well. And we also mined this data and looked at the expression levels of this subunit, and you find that this actually corresponds, to, these are very focal amplifications that actually correspond to higher levels of expression of the regulatory subunit, which, if you think about it in the context of breast cancer, is probably serving to sequester any free catalytic subunit, keeping PKA inactive, and allowing cells to lapse into a more mesenchymal state that is more conducive to tumor progression. Second part is how widely applicable is this? So it's interesting because if you throw Cholerotoxin on your you know, workhouse NDME231 or some 159 cell lines, these are typically used breast cancer cell lines, they won't do anything, the cells don't budge. So we know that there are differences in, in the utility of this system, but it's very important to understand why is it that it works in some systems and it doesn't work in others. And so, because most of my studies until this stage was done using cancer cell lines, I wanted to take one step back and use different models to see if it works uh, in other systems. And to do this, I used two models. One of them was uh, two mouse models. Uh, I got these from two different places. Uh, one of them has an, uh, an activating mutation, the same mutation that I used to conceive the activate PKA. This mouse has knocking mutations uh, within the catalytic subunit. And I got these from Stan McKnight's lab uh, from Seattle. The other one are, uh, again, knocking mutations in the G-alpha-S subunit. And what this does is also makes it considerably active. It mimics a GTP bound state, so this is constantly firing to a delayed cyclist and making, uh, keeping it active. And so what I've done with both of these is these are both flux mice of crossed into MMTV Cree, uh, which is a memory gland-specific um, uh, promoter. And what you can see is when you look at the memory glands, uh, there's, a, there's a slight skewing of the differentiation within the memory gland. So I'll point out, again, this one piece of data from, from the PKA uh, in mice uh, in the interest of time, and also because this is still quite preliminary. So if you look at the mouse memory gland, this is, if you can separate the cells with either FKM or CD49F, you get these two subpopulations that you can very clearly separate, this being the luminal population and this being the basal population. And the basal compartment within the memory gland is known to contain the memory stem cells. What we find is when we activate PKA, we find that there's a slight skewing of the differentiation towards the more luminal compartment. And we've done crosses of these mice to MMTV PYNT, which is a mouse model of breast cancer. And again, this is still preliminary, but we've got two litters so far, and uh, none of these mice actually develop any tumors. So um, I think what's happening is perhaps there's a cell of origin here that's being differentiated or is, is not conducive to being transformed uh, anymore. And so we're not getting tumors. 
I also wanted to look at a completely different system. Um, this was the marshmallow gland, but I was very keen on looking at human cells. And so what I wanted to adopt was this um, 3D hydrogel uh, culture system. This was developed uh, in Piyush Gupta's lab at the Whitehead Institute. And it's based on work that was done you know, many years ago by Nina Bissell's lab and others. And essentially what they do is um, implant these primary um, human memory epithelial cells in a culture system that contains collagens, uh, laminins, and other um, components that mimics the normal environment of, of the mammary gland. Um, and what they find is when these grow out, they form these beautiful organoids that again mimic the bilate st uh, structure of the memory epithelium. You see these luminal cells that express catenin 8 and 18 in the, in the lumen in, in the center, and you have these basal cells that express catenin 14 on the outside. And so I really wanted to look at this system and see how I can um, study uh, EMT and look at the role of some of the agents that I've been using. And if in this system I would actually see you know, any changes. What I find is when I treat these organoids with chlorotoxin, first of all, there's, there's a prevention of the outgrowth of these ducts. So you don't see ductal outgrowth anymore. You just have these big balls of cells just sitting in the hydrogels. But when you actually stain them through Vimentin and Ecadirin, you find that typically what you would get is these structures that form with the Vimentin being on the outside and actually at the leading edge of these, um, of these ducts and the lumen being filled with Ecadirin-positive epithelial cells. That's completely disrupted here, and what you find is a very small proportion of momentum-positive cells. So you have a lot more EKDM-positive epithelial cells. And what you also see now is when you stain them for cytokeratin 14 and 18 to mark the luminal and basal compartments, the cells that would normally form this, again, bilayed epithelium now completely form just this luminal-like ball structure. There are very few basal cells um, in them. So there's some skewing of differentiation that's happening towards the luminal compartment, which I've been able to see in both the mouse models, but also in these primary 3D uh, hydrogel assays. And uh, at the moment, I'm trying a few different agents that do the same thing to see if I uh, can see the same effects. So I'll quickly move on to the third part, is what actually is happening downstream of activation of PKA? But PKA is, a, is an old kinase that people have been studying for a long time. And so there are lots of substrates that are known um, to be PKA substrates. So I wanted to look at what actually happens um, following activation of, so following the disruption of the PKA catalytic and regulatory subunit uh, interaction, what actually happens to the catalytic subunit? Where does it go in the cell? So I started by looking at uh, immunofluorescence. And what we find is that at steady state in the mesenchymal cells, most of the catalytic subunit, I don't know if you can see it very well here, but most of the catalytic subunit is actually present in the cytoplasm. Following um, treatment with chlorotoxin within an hour, you see there's a translocation of the catalytic subunit into the nucleus. And it remains in the nucleus for um, maybe about an hour, two hours. And after that, you start seeing that it moves back out into the, uh, into the cytoplasm. And we see this by Western blocks as well. And this to me indicated that what we're looking at is probably a nucleus substrate. The, the catalytic subunit is moving into the nucleus, maybe phosphorylating, phosphorylating something in the cytoplasm, sorry, in the nucleus, um, and then moving back out. And if you look at the literature, there are um, quite a few substrates of PK that are nuclear proteins. The most well-studied one being CRUB, or CMP response element binding protein. So I, um, I wanted to systematically see if I could find the substrate that was important for this transition. And I started off knocking down one of these, uh, these one by one. So I knocked out CREB, knocked out the GLI family of proteins, which are part of the hedgehog signaling pathway, which are again uh, inhibited by PKA. The YAP-TAS family of proteins, again, which are part of the HEPA signaling pathway. 
but none of these actually had any effect on the, on the transition. So even the absence of uh, CREB or Glee, I could add color toxin in the center of the transition just fine, indicating to me that these were not really uh, essential for the transition. And I was just going to maybe go ahead and do something that was more unbiased, um, using a protocol to identify specific substrates in this process. But before doing that, I just wanted to try one more substrate that was in the literature, this protein called PHF2, which is a histone demethylase. It specifically demethylates the um, H3K9 marks, and it's known to be phosphorylated by PKA in its C-terminus. And phosphorylation by PKA actually makes it an active demethylase. And so it's now able to demethylate these uh, marks, which are traditionally known to be silencing marks. So at this point, I wanted to see if it actually was a substrate in my system. And we don't have any good phospho PHF2 antibodies. We don't even have good PHF2 antibodies. So um, I was a bit confused as to what I could do here. But what I ended up doing was an IP using a PHF2-specific antibody, and Western blotting against this PKA substrate-specific antibody. And what I find is that following addition of chorotoxin, you find that there is a band here indicating that there is uh, interaction between an IP PHF2 and uh, some form of phosphorylation that's happening. So this is indicated that PHF2 could be a substrate in this system. Um, I then knocked it down, and I found that, surprisingly, knockdown of PHF2 actually phenocopied um, knockdown of PKA, in the sense that in the absence of PHF2, these cells now don't uh, transition to uh, an epithelial state. They still remain dementin positive and CD44 high, whereas the control happens all become 44 low and become epithelial again. So this is quite exciting because um, I didn't know what PHF2 really did, but I knew that it was important. And because it was a demethylase, I knew that there was some form of epigenetic change that was happening when I activated um, PHF2. And so to study this better, um, I did chip sequencing of PHF2 um, and uh, the two canine marks, the di and the trimethyl canine marks, both of which are silencing marks. And so when I did chromatin IP and sequenced the regions that you find PHF2 is localized to, you find that it's always inversely localized to the K9 mark, such that wherever there's K9, there's very little pH, or wherever there's pH of 2, there's very little K9, uh, which is not surprising because it is a demethylates, so it demethylates those marks. But when we do a genome-wide study and look at where pH of 2 is actually localized in the genome, you find that there are regions that are actually important for an epithelial phenotype, like proteins like keratins, uh, cadherins, claudins, EPCAM, P63. Most of these regions have now uh, K9 silencing marks when cells undergo an EMT. And when we now activate PKA, it activates PHF2, which demethylates these genomic regions and allows them to be transcribed, which um, contribute to the acquisition of this epithelial phenotype. So I'll just point out two quick examples of this. Um, this is uh, just a snapshot from IGV. And what you see here is chip sequencing data from uh, the dynamic aid and Zenkmo cells uh, and the cells after treatment with chorotoxin, and this is PHF2 localization. You find K9, tri, methyl, before and after treatment, and this is just RNA-seq data that's been put in here just to uh, show expression. And in dynamic aid cells, this is the CDH1, CDH3 locus. CDH1 codes for EKD and CDH3 codes for PKD. What you find is that there is no PHF2 bound to these regions, uh, and it's not expressed. We do have some silencing marks, although it's hard to conclude what amount of this silencing mark is actually important for repression. But when you now activate the color toxin, you find now PHF2 binds to the primordial regions of both of these genes, and you find that now those uh, and you also get transcription of these two genomic loci. 
And another example, this is TJP1, or tight junction protein 1, which is important for digestions. And um, in this case, actually, you find localization of PHF2 at both of these, in both of these cell types, before and after um, treatment with colotoxin. What you do find with the mesenchymal cells, though, is very heavy canine silencing, which presumably is precluding this gene from being transcribed. But following treatment with colotoxin, now you lose that um, canine silencing, and now you can get much better transcription of this genomic region. So we find a lot of such epithelial regions which were initially silenced um, in the mesenchymal state, which have now been believed without silencing and can be transcribed. Um, and so what we believe is actually happening is activation of PKA allows it to be localized into uh, the nucleus where it phosphorylates and activates PHF2, which is a histone demethylase, which can then convert these cells from this mesenchymal state uh, by uh, demethylating some of these canine silencing marks and allowing transcription of genes that are important for uh, the epithelial state. And so I'll just quickly summarize this part. Um, so we know the PK phosphorylates and activates this demethylase PHF2. And the PHF2 is actually essential for the transition that we observe, because when it's not there, the transition doesn't happen. And PHF2 represses these loci that are important for acquisition of an epithelial state. So for the next few minutes, I'd actually like to spend some time um, going over some of the future directions that I'd like to pursue um, in, in my future lab. And the first question here is something that I'm very interested in, is trying to actually understand the system better. The advantage that we have with PKA is that there's a lot known about the system. There's a lot known about each contributing factor or pathway. And so it would be interesting to look at, in this context, what's actually happening to all of those factors. So I've previously shown you treatment with colorotoxin and phosphorylin, but if you think about it in, the cell, in a cell that's present in the microenvironment, you don't have any of these agents. What actually regulates CAMP are uh, G-protein coupled receptors. So in the absence of ligand, you don't uh, have activation of regulate cyclase, and you don't have much CAMP. Again, this is uh, just for the sake of explanation, because you always have some basal level of CAMP in the cells. But when you now have ligand binding, you find that the G-protein now decouples from the GPCR and the GTP uh, bound state, which is then able to activate the ventilate cyclase, um, again, increase CMP levels, activate PKA, and um, presumably phosphorylate and activate PHF2. So I'm really keen in trying to understand which of these TPCRs would actually play a role in the normal mammary gland or in the context of breast cancer, what ligand would it bind to, and how would that influence residence of that particular cell in an epithelial or mesenchymal state? So there are two specific G proteins that uh, regulate adenylate cyclase. The GS regulates by activating adenylate cyclase, and the GI uh, represses adenylate cyclase. So they both work in antagonistic fashion. And so at the moment, I'm trying to identify agonists or antagonists of GPCRs that are coupled to GS or GI uh, to try and see if we can identify agents that can specifically either increase or decrease the levels of CAMP. And GPCRs are actually very well-known therapeutic targets. I think about 30% of all the drugs that we have in the, in the market today are, again, targeted against GPCRs. And so this might be an attractive avenue to look for uh, things that perhaps might have even been used for other conditions but can be repurposed for, um, for cancer therapy. But also for the sake of understanding what actually goes on, if you look at 
uh, epithelial versus mesenchymal cells, they're actually quite different in the environment that they have. So epithelial cells bind to one another through all of these junctions, and they also bind to the basement membrane here, which contains a series of different uh, components, including laminins and collagens. And so you could imagine that even though you have a GPCR that's expressed at the same level in, in the epithelial or mesenchymal cell, which doesn't have uh, basement membrane, but is rather just surrounded by an ECM, that perhaps that same GPCR might be able to access a ligand in the basement membrane, for example, which will activate it and keep the CNMP levels higher in the epithelial state, whereas once the cells have now lost that contact with the basement membrane, they will now lose that um, maintenance of CNMP and lapse to a mesenchymal state. The other, so the cartoon that I've shown you here for regulation of CNMP is, a bit, again, rather simplistic because there's other factors that are also involved in the CNMP response. One of these is this family of protein called AKAP or akinase anchoring proteins. And these tether to the regulatory subunits of, uh, of PKA and move to different subcellular locations. And that in some ways dictates where PKA is active. So some of my work is currently focused on identifying which AKAP is actually bound to the regulatory subunit in the context of the transition and um, how that actually influences where PKA goes following activation. The other family of proteins that I'm very interested in is the phosphodiesterase family. And this is a family of proteins that's important for hydrolyzing CAMP back to AMP. And again, PDEs are also quite good drug targets. There are a few drugs that um, target PDEs. But we do know that there are um, differences in expression of certain PDEs between the epithelial and mesenchymal cells. So this could be one avenue where we could pursue therapeutic targeting of PDEs in the mesenchymal cell type. Presumably, that would then lead to the maintenance of more CAMP in that cell, allowing it to move to a more epithelial state. Next question is, again, as I mentioned, not all the cells respond equally to changes in CAMP. Uh, different cells respond quite differently. And so what I really want to do is try and understand the dynamics of PKA activation and how that's different when you activate PKA in an epithelial cell or in a mesenchymal cell or in different mesenchymal cell types. And to do this, I've... Uh, I've been uh, getting help from the lab of Bernardo Sabatini at Harvard Medical School, he's a, a neuroscientist, and they do FET very frequently. So I'll just quickly describe this. So essentially, what I've been using is a PKA reporter, where you have a donor and an acceptor fluorophore, which has a linker containing a PKA substrate. So typically, when you excite with a wavelength that activates the donor, um, if the acceptor is not in close proximity, you get emission at the wavelength of the donor. However, when you now have PKA activity, you find that that uh, distance is now less because you have PKA binding to its substrate. So the acceptor comes in close proximity to the donor. And now when you excite the donor, you find uh, an emission uh, at the floor for the acceptor because there's energy transfer between the uh, donor and the acceptor. So if I do a ratiometric FET to look at the dynamics of activation following PK activation, um, dynamics of CAMP and PK, uh, I haven't been very successful with that, and so which is why I went to Bernardo's lab where they they uh, routinely use two-photon FLIM, which is slightly different from FET. So rather than measuring the wavelength uh, that's uh, emitting from the uh, from the acceptor, what it's actually measuring is the lifetime of the donor. So it's fluorescence lifetime imaging. So what you see is that if the donor is not in close proximity to the acceptor, the lifetime of the donor is actually much higher. Whereas when the acceptor is not in close proximity, it actually 
uh, serves to quench some of that energy, and so you get much lower lifetime of the donor. And so what we find here, I'll just show you one quick experiment. Uh, this is comparing activation of PKA in the NAMIC-8 mesenchymal cells and what happens in the SUM-159 cells, which I know don't respond to CAMP. What you find is following treatment with chondrotoxin, you find this big dip in the lifetime of the donor, indicating that PKA is active in the system. Uh, over a period of, this is about 20 minutes, I think, yes. Um, but what you see in, in the SUM-159 cells is that there's actually a very small change. Um, and so there's something that's preventing CAMP from being active and something that's preventing PK activation in this system. Um, presumably, it could be certain phosphodiesterases that are higher in these cells compared to other cells. So this is one avenue where I want to understand not only temporal but also spatial dynamics, looking at where this complex is actually present and where I get activation uh, when I treat these cells with chlorotoxin. The other question that I have is, um, looking at PHF2, it's a rather understudied protein. And um, so how is PHF2 actually able to bind to those low side that are important for NAPCDL state? Um, so what we find, what I told you is that PHF2 demethylates these uh, methylation marks that are silencing. What we also know from the, from the literature is that PHF2 actually closely associates with Arid5b, which is a putative component of the switch sniff complex, which is important for chromatin remodeling. So what we might be seeing is that the effects are not mediated only through demethylation, but also through chromatin remodeling. Now, again, when you think of this therapeutically, it's very hard to therapeutically activate something. I think traditionally we've been very good at inhibiting things by therapeutic targeting. And so what I'm in the process of doing is trying to identify histone methyl transferases that lay down those K9 marks when cells undergo an EMT, so we can then inhibit that uh, enzyme rather than trying to activate PHF2. The other question that I'm also uh, interested in, obviously, is a lot of these, the work that I've presented is very PKA-centric. But I'm generally interested in trying to identify ways by which we can sensitize cells to therapy, make them less metastatic, through the induction of this transition to a more um, epithelial state. And when you look at the EMT, I think our knowledge of the EMP program has evolved a lot over the years. And we know that rather than it being a switch from an E to an M state, just two different cell types, it's actually, there are a spectrum of different states in between. You have cells that are partially mesenchymal that have lost certain epithelial traits and have gained some mesenchymal traits. And these, in fact, tend to be more tumorigenic than cells that have undergone a complete transition to a mesenchymal state. And so the idea here would be that Maybe some of these cells might be better at communication. We don't know. And maybe that would be different in a completely different system. But it doesn't matter, because if we can induce all of these cells to a more epithelial state, we know that that would at least give them some level of, uh, at least to some extent, would make them more sensitive to chemotherapy and prevent metastasis. Because being in this com completely epithelial state, but they have all the junctions intact, actually makes them uh, less tumorigenic and less metastatic, because they can't leave the primary tumor. And so this is where some of my future directions will be focused, is to identify some of these other pathways that are important for uh, the transition. And to do this, the initial screen that I told you was based on an Echidarian luciferase reporter. Um, but I've made a few different versions of this now. One of them now is the same luciferase vector, um, which now contains these um, insulator regions, which makes it much easier to, uh, to get rid of um, non-specific uh, targeting molecules. I mean, and I hope to use that for a bigger small molecule um, study to identify other agents that can do the same thing. 
that I've also designed one with a neomycin cassette that now makes it easier to do a CRISPR screen. For example, if I inject a, and I'm currently in the process of doing CRISPR screen where uh, if I have a guide RNA that can, uh, that can inhibit a certain protein that's important for repression of EKD RNA, um, that would then transcribe and activate neomycin. And so I can just add G4NA to my cells and identify uh, or isolate only those cells that are resistant to G4NA. And so through these different ways, I hope to identify other pathways that are important for uh, an MET or residence in a more epithelial state. And I'd like to end with this slide, which is that we know that this heterogeneity actually exists in a range of different tumor types. This is not just breast cancer. Um, in fact, there's been a study here that was done by Tan showing that essentially what they did is based on gene expression profiling and gene expression signatures, they gave different tumors, <coughs> different EMT scores. And we find that over a range of different tumor types, you have this epithelial mesenchymal heterogeneity. So some of these lessons that we learned from breast cancer would presumably be applied to other tumor types as well in the long run. So I'd um, like to stop there and acknowledge uh, Bob for being uh, a, a fantastic mentor. He's been very supportive of this work. Uh, I've also been very fortunate to have four very talented uh, students who've worked with me. These are all exchange students from Germany. And um, all of my um, lab mates who have been helpful at various stages of this project and have made the lab a fantastic place to work, a very collegial place to work. Um, I've also been lucky in that I have access to a lot of core facilities at the Whitehead or the uh, Koch Institute across the street. And I'd also like to thank Piyush Gupta's lab that have helped me um, uh, repurpose the use of the 3D hydrogen model system to look at uh, cyclic AMP and its effects. And also, I've not seen his lab, specifically Yao, who's a postdoc in the lab, who's helped me use two photon fat film to look at some of these PK dynamics. And I'd also like to, to thank my funding from uh, the NHMRC of Australia and currently uh, my kinetic from the NCA. I'm happy to take, take any questions if there are any. So um, a lot of the self-phenotypes that we observe are actually overlapping. So that's why I didn't present that data, because in some ways it's just repetition. But if you look at the dynamics of foreskolin, it's actually different, because foreskolin induces very acute increases in CMP. But over time, you find that it drops down very quickly as well. So you don't have the maintenance of CMP for, for a long time. Whereas with colorotoxin, you have the ADP robustates the G protein, which keeps it in this active block conformation, which keeps activating admitted cyclase. So even though you have feedback on phosphodiesterase, it still maintains a pool of CMP that's active for longer. And so I think the effects are a lot more um, long-lasting than phosphodiesterase. Yeah. Yeah. Based on the fact that, that MIT increases sensitivity to pretty much every antikinase agent, uh, whether it's traditional chemotherapy or specific agent. Mm -hmm. Could it be that simply the apoptotic threshold is more with urine transition? Um, I think that's definitely true. That in papers that have shown that the apoptotic threshold is definitely lower. I think there's also other proteins that are important for um, 
some assistance to therapy, such as you know, certain drug transporters or efflux pumps, which are also differentially expressed, which also dictate nerve assistance. So I think it's a host of different factors. You also find that the mesenchymal cells also tend to proliferate slower than the epithelial cells. So that is also an added factor, which makes them less susceptible to, to um, chemo and other agents. So one of the things you uh, emphasized was variability. That's right. And um, you showed beautiful data of uh, how manipulating cyclic AMP in, in a limited number of tumor models right. gave you the effect. Do you have a feel for how, how broad this is? Yeah, so uh, I've been collaborating with other people in the lab who are looking at ovarian cancer, for example. So we've been trying this on a few different ovarian systems. And again, like in breast cancer, it also has very similar, in the sense that it works in some ovarian lines, it doesn't work in others. But the general principle still remains true in that, so the ovarian system is slightly different because in the breast system, um, I mentioned that when you activate the EPACs, they don't have an effect. Um, and when you go back and look at the gene expression data, you find that the EPACs are not actually very highly expressed in the breast cells. And so even though you're increasing CAMP levels, there's really no EPAC to activate. And so that's why PKA is really the key pathway in the breast cells. But if you look at the ovarian cells, they actually have high expression of the EPACs as well. So in that case, when I have active PKA and uh, conceivably active EPAC one, that then has very similar effects in that it pushes the cells to a more epithelial state. Again, some of that work is still very preliminary, and uh, we've seen it in uh, xenografts in, in mice, uh, but it only works for some lines again. And I think teasing out why that is is, is quite important. Yes. Thank you so much for your presentation. I'm happy to see that cyclic AMP, which is involved in the AC production, mm -hmm. epithelial cells, mm -hmm. was also observed to play a role in cancer. Mm -hmm. It's another example of uh, differentiation, normal differentiation, mm -hmm. tumor genesis being imposed inside mm -hmm. the same coin. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering, um, and what I was going to ask you is if any matrix components, which you also know differentiate normal epithelial cells, play a role, like you've done your hydrogel yes. method, but is there any chance that you give color toxin instead of sort of like a differentiation back using MET? Mm -hmm. Is it perhaps a selective process going on where color toxin is inducing death? or slow, slowness of growth of the mesenchymal cell. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And um, so in the amic-8 for example, you don't see much death. Uh, so that was one of the things that I was really interested in looking at. Are we just killing off uh, different mesenchymal populations, one that's more mesenchymal, and allowing the outgrowth of, of uh, something that's more epithelial? But that doesn't seem to be the case, because if you do a live imaging, for example, and I've been presenting this data, you can actually see these mesenchymal cells transitioning to something that's more epithelial. So in that system, that doesn't seem to be the case. In the in the context of the 3D hydrogel, I haven't really been able to look that closely yet. What we do find is there's obviously less dementin positive cells, which are more mesenchymal, and that uh, you can find that those are at the leading edge of these ducts that form. And you find that that's almost absent when you treat them with colorotoxin. So it's possible that in that case, what we're doing is preventing the, the ductal or the basal cells uh, from growing out, which allows the expansion of the luminal compartment. That's absolutely possible. It's something that I'm obviously hoping to address uh, very soon. Can I just ask one more? Sure. So um, if you follow um, uh, Deborah, this method and Joan Brookie's method yes. culture and CF10A, yes. they had color toxins. That's correct. Media. That's correct. And so um, I've actually eliminated that at some point in my yeah. career because I ran out. Right. And I see yes. the argument that you see. Yes. So uh, again, we've done a fair bit of work with MCF10A as well. And it's true, when you remove color toxins from the medium, 
the undergoing EMT, they become mesenchymal, actually gain C44 as well. And in fact, even in that case, when they undergo EMT, they become more resistant to therapy. And you treat them with paclitaxel especially. So yes, it is applicable to a few different models, but not every cancer model out there. Yeah. I'm wondering if uh, any activating mutations in GPCRs have been reported in breast cancer that might give yeah, this is a great question. So there's been work done by Sylvia Goodkin and others at UCSD uh, where there are activating mutations in uh, GNAQ and other G-proteins. Um, GPCS, I think there's a significant portion of GPCS that have mutated in human cancer. Whether that necessarily has a role in the outcome of the tumor, I don't think we know yet. In the case of breast cancer, I've actually looked at a few putative GPCRs that I've tried to work with. I haven't seen any of the current uh, uh, genomic you know, changes in them, any alterations. Uh, but again, there's 800 different GPCRs, so yeah, just don't know at this point. I'm just wondering from the perspective of optimism. Yes. If you have to, if your epithelial transition now makes them sensitive to drugs, you're dependent upon a 100% transitional, you will have resistance. This is a good question. I mean, that would mean that every cell would have to transition to becoming more epithelial because the ones that don't will still be resistant. Um, if you look at the dynamic uh, 8 line, uh, they all, there are a few different clones within that line. So you have different mesenchymal subpopulations within that one mesenchymal line. And not all of them transition at the same rate. You find that some within 48 hours will become epithelial, whereas it takes others much longer. And I think that just reflects the epigenetic differences between these uh, different subpopulations within that line. So some of them are just more amenable to being you know, uh, shifted, and the others just take longer. Um, and for that epigenetic change to happen, it just takes much longer uh, for, some, for some reason. Or maybe what I'm doing is just not optimal at this point yet. But it's a, it's a great question, and it's something that we need to keep up for. I mean, if all this is on transition, this is as good as chemotherapy. Maybe. I don't know. So the idea of being able to reverse epigenetic marks in order to push cells into this fate versus that fate is really very popular. But it seems like uh, the enzymes that are demethylating or methylating the stones, for example, are really pretty generic. That's right. Um, so what are your thoughts about how to, if you're going to pursue that route, um, how do you target yeah. these specific genes as opposed to I'm altering the entire genetic landscape of the So even in the case of PHF2, uh, when you look at what it demethylates, it's actually much more than just epithelial loci. So it's doing other things that we don't understand. And that's probably true of any epigenetic factor. I don't think we could really understand what each factor is doing. So this definitely is a challenge. Um, if you look at targeting per se, so the PHF2, like many other demethylases, has a Jumanji domain. So if you target the catalytic domain, that's going to inhibit other enzymes as well. So there are going to be changes in other demethylases, presumably. Um, identifying a very specific way of targeting this, I'm still not sure if there are very unique sites that we can use to target. Um, I think at this point, what I really want to do is try and understand how it works uh, before trying to design something that can inhibit it. Perhaps, again, maybe uh, if you look at the method transferases, there might be 
uh, ones that are more amenable to targeting. Like if you look at the G9A or GLP uh, uh, transferases, those specifically lay down K9 uh, uh, dimethyl and trans cell marks. Um, I don't know if there are very specific inhibitors against those that won't cross-react with other transferases, but yeah, it's definitely something to keep in mind. I think uh, targeting at any point is going to, especially when it's epigenetic, is going to be global and it's going to do things that maybe you don't really want. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.